This podcast is a marketing communication and is for investment professionals only. The information and views expressed, including any reference to specific investments, does not constitute investment advice, nor should it be treated as a recommendation for any investments. Past performance is not a guide to future performance, and the value of an investment may fall as well as rise. Welcome to Taking Stock, hosted by Finley Park. Hello, and welcome to Finley Park's Taking Stock. My name is Silla Likalakala, and I am an equity analyst at Finley Park. I'm joined here today by my colleague, John Treget, who is a portfolio manager and partner in the business. John and I will be discussing how Finley Park is approaching 2023 and uh, more specifically, where are we seeing investment opportunities? Let's just maybe take a second to look back at 2022 because it was, for lack of a better term, quite eventful. I think you can't just look at 2022. I think you have to look at kind of the environment we're coming out of. And you could say maybe 2022 was you know, potentially the end of the 0% interest rate free money environment. And it might have also capped the end of a, a very speculative period uh, for US companies. I think going forward, two implications from that. One will be an increased scrutiny by investors on the quality of a company's earnings. So we talked about in the second quarter newsletter um, last year about stock-based compensation and companies that use adjusted earnings. And you know there was a lot of the more speculative companies in the last few years that were very liberal users of stock-based compensation and also adjusted earnings. So focusing on a company's free cash flow conversion I think will be increasingly important in the quality of earnings. And secondly, capital allocation. You know, we are coming out of a period of free money uh, where interest rates were, were zero for a long period. And there was likely some very poor capital allocation during that period. And you know, one of the questions on our investment philosophy checklist is you know, have management demonstrated good capital allocation. So I think there's going to be increasing focus on that in the market generally, given the environment we're exiting. John, it's fair to say that despite a very strong start to the year, there's still a lot of uncertainty lingering. So can you please walk us through how exactly is Team Finley Park navigating this uncertainty? Well, the market backdrop you know, has changed a lot over the history of Finley Park. And this week is actually the 25th anniversary of the American Fund. But what has not changed over time is the investment philosophy, which remains consistent. And it's applicable to all market environments. So we are aware of the macroeconomic and geopolitical environment in which our companies exist. But what we're not trying to do is forecast you know, what that geopolitical or economic environment is going to be. So the investment philosophy, we think, is relevant to all environments. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is own a diversified portfolio of companies we can live with in any environment. What we do find, though, Cello, over time, is that in different market backdrops, different questions in our investment philosophy checklist tend to get more or less emphasis depending on what that market environment is. So for example, today, questions like stable and predictable cash flows, appropriate capital structure, would you back management to take advantage of a downturn, free cash flow conversion, you know, these are all foundational principles for Finley Park, but they tend to be embraced more widely by the market when risk appetite is lower. And that's the environment that we're coming out of right now. So we're not sure what the future economic environment is going to bring, but we own resilient businesses with strong balance sheets. And ultimately, we think that our, the management teams that we're 
invested alongside will be able to use those balance sheets as either a defensive or offensive tool to enhance their future earnings power. I want to come back to a point you mentioned at the start about the importance of having a diversified fund. Uh, the Finley Park American Fund, as we know, has always aimed to deliver an attractive compound return for investors through a diversified portfolio. We saw that in 2022, where the biggest contributors to performance were spread across a wide range of industries, insurance, energy, communications, property services, and so on. One trend that's been emerging recently is the shift towards mid-cap companies. I think two-thirds of the new holdings added to the fund in the past two years have a market capitalization of less than $50 billion. Can you explain this evolution? So the first thing I would say is that if you look at the fund's market cap distribution, it's always been skewed away from very large companies, you know, companies with market caps over $100 billion. Those companies less, represent less than 40% of the fund today. And if you compare that to our benchmark index, the Russell 1000, they represent about 56% of that index. And it's even higher if you looked at the S&P 500. So we've been making a more active pivot away from these large cap companies towards mid cap companies in the last few years, which we define as companies with market capitalizations between three and 50 billion. You know, those companies represent over 45% of the portfolio today versus about 35% for our benchmark index. And we have about 27 holdings right now that are under 50 billion in market capitalization. Mm. Um, the three to 50 billion range you give, uh, just from recollection, sounds a bit larger than most commonly cited definitions of mid-cap companies in the US at least. So perhaps let's take a step back, John, and let me ask you, what exactly is the definition of mid-cap according to us? So we define mid-caps as companies with market capitalizations between three and 50 billion. And the reason we do that is we think that the most popular mid-cap index in the US, which is the S&P 400 mid-cap, is too restrictive. If you look at the S&P 400 mid-cap, the median market cap is only about 5.6 billion. You know, To put that in context, there's only one company in the S&P 500 that has a market cap below that threshold. Yeah, no, I think that would make it difficult for us to invest in. It does. So if you look at mid-caps the way we define them, three to 50 billion, there's about 1,100 publicly traded US companies with market caps in that range. So this is a ver very fertile ground to find new opportunity. So what exactly then is driving this pivot towards mid caps? And more importantly, why now? Well, ultimately, we're identifying better risk adjusted opportunities in this cohort of companies. It's driven by several factors, including valuation, performance or kind of the shape of the market and also geopolitical factors that we think are going to benefit mid-cap companies more than large-cap companies. So looking at performance, if you look at the U.S. market, it's been dominated the last five to 10 years by very large companies. If you just look at our index, the Russell 1000, eight mega-cap companies in that index contributed around 45% of the total return over the past decade, which is an astonishing contribution for a pretty small group of companies. We've owned a few of these companies, like Microsoft, for the majority of this, and it's actually been the largest position in the fund since 2015. But other companies like Tesla and Apple did not score as well on our investment philosophy checklist. So it's been a major headwind for us, uh, at least on a relative basis. Yeah, we think our investment philosophy is much better suited to an environment where a diversified portfolio of companies can outperform. You know, looking at valuation, which is another reason, if you look at the trailing price to earnings multiple 
of the S&P mid-cap 400. It's near a 30-year low versus the larger S&P 500. It's not hugely surprising when you consider the percentage of the S&P 500 capitalization that's under 50 billion market cap today. It shrunk from about 47% to 23% in the last decade. And I guess the natural question there from, from there on is, you have to bet that that trend is going to continue, which is quite difficult to imagine. Well, we think it's unlikely. You know, if you look at that group of eight mega cap companies, they grew their revenue over the last 10 years at about a 25% compound annual growth rate. So they could do that again, uh, but it would mean that their revenues would expand from about 1.6 trillion today to almost 10 trillion, uh, up sixfold, you know, which would probably be close to 30% or more of US GDP at that time. So it's possible, but it's not something I'd want to bet on. If you look historically, these periods where you have a small group of companies becoming very dominant in the index, it tends to come in waves. And when it changes and moves the other way, it can last for years. But there are other factors, Cello, that are going on here that are not necessarily tied to just performance or valuation, which favor mid-caps. There are also strong geopolitical reasons. The U.S. has set out a desire to onshore more production and have more manufacturing going on within U.S. borders, which we think is more likely to favor mid-cap companies than very large companies, which have built out more of their global supply chains. And smaller companies also have less regulatory risk, and this is increasingly a focus for the Biden administration. And finally, smaller companies start from a lower level of earnings. So their ability to compound at a higher rate is better than large companies. A question that comes to mind is, what does the shift or pivot to mid-caps imply for the number of holdings in the fund? And more importantly, John, the liquidity of the fund. Well, the number of holdings could trend up, but I think it would still stay within that 40 to 60 holdings that we've talked to clients about. But it wouldn't surprise me if the whole number of holdings goes to the 50 to 60 range, so the upper end of that range. In terms of liquidity, you know, the fund is extremely liquid. So we could liquidate the 50% of the fund in a single day, assuming you know 20% average daily volume. So the fund is very liquid. On the margin, the fund will become slightly less liquid as we own more you know, of these mid-cap type companies. But in the grand scheme of things, the fund will still be very liquid. John, earlier on, we talked about how two-thirds of the new holdings in the fund in the last two years have been in the mid-cap space. I'm wondering, is there any particular theme or sector bias uh, that comes across with these new additions to the portfolio? It's very hard to generalize. You know, the, the types of companies that we have been adding to the portfolio are very diversified. You know, they're diversified by the type of business, they're diversified by the sector, they're diversified even by market capitalization. You know, to give you a few examples, you know, Granger, which is the US's largest industrial distributor, um, Teledyne, which is really a niche industrial provider of sensing equipment. We've added two healthcare, you know, two companies in the healthcare space. You know, Liberty Formula One, uh, which I think is a name you're probably familiar to. Ferguson. I'm a big fan. <laughs> many are. Um, there's 399 million others. Um, Ferguson, which is the U.S.'s largest plumbing and heating distributor. You know, Royal Gold, uh, a royalty, a you know, gold royalty company. So very hard to generalize. 
very diversified by sector and, and type of business. So liquidity is one potential concern. Um, as you explained, the fund remains very liquid despite this uh, pivot. But another potential concern, I guess, is around ESG disclosures. Generally speaking, large companies have really good disclosure, but then as you move down the market cap spectrum, the level of transparency decreases quite a bit. Will we still be able to analyze companies through a responsible investment lens, even as we move down the market cap spectrum? Yes. So philosophically, our ESG approach is the same. I mean, trying to identify risks and opportunities. We will be running companies through the same process we use internally and doing you know, the responsible investment gauge. We will be scoring all the companies. I think your point is a fair one where smaller companies don't have the same number of resources as a larger company. So one of the drawbacks is they might not be as good in monitoring and recording ESG-related data. Uh, they might not have a dedicated person internally uh, that's focused on this, so they might not have an ESG report. So those are drawbacks. But on the flip side, what we have observed is our ability to influence uh, those companies um, and their thinking around things like science-based targets and decarbonization ESG is greater. And two examples is one company invited us to present to the board on how to establish a science-based target. Um, and we had another company who admitted to us that we were quite influential in helping them think about how they put out their first ESG report. So you have some things that are drawbacks as you look at smaller companies and you have some areas where we think we can be more, uh, you know, provide more impact. So we've spent quite some time talking about mid-caps, but I recall, John, that around November of last year, you and Anthony Kingsley, our CIO, spoke about deglobalization and the reindustrialization of America. And I just want to understand, how does this tie in, if at all, to mid-caps? So the mid-cap pivot and the reindustrialization of America theme, they're mutually exclusive. The one point where they do intersect is a more domestic tilt to the portfolio. You know, there are going to be mid-cap companies that are major beneficiaries of this reindustrialization of America, because mid-cap companies, uh, as we discussed earlier, are less likely to have built out their supply chains to the same extent as larger companies. When you look at the reindustrialization, you know, and kind of infrastructure build trend in America, it applies to a very broad swath of companies, not just mid-caps, because the legislative package is meant to address a very broad set of priorities. You know, if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, if you look at the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, if you look at the CHIPS Act, you know, it's about economic self-sufficiency, you know, decarbonization or the greening of America, reshoring US manufacturing jobs, upgrading and expanding infrastructure, you know, a much broader set of priorities than just focusing on mid-cap companies. And as a result, the beneficiaries from that reindustrialization cover a very wide and diversified number of sectors, market caps, and domestic and international companies. John, this has been a really thought-provoking discussion. I know the team is really excited about what lies ahead for us this year. We feel good about the holdings in the American fund, and more specifically, this pivot toward mid-caps. Yes. You know, as the fund enters its 25th year, we do so in an environment where the market and investing backdrop has changed significantly as we've discussed, and we're encouraged by the opportunities that will bring. We think mid-cap companies are attractively valued relative to large cap. They're also well-positioned to benefit from greater infrastructure spending in America. And finally, because they're less well-researched, 
there's a real opportunity for us to leverage our own in-house research capabilities to identify quality companies in this area. I'm sure we'll explore more of these topics uh, in more depth as the year unfolds, but I think that's it for now. Thank you, John, and thank you to our listeners. Thanks for listening.